Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jera, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have crew members Andy. Hello. And Sue. Hi there. Before we get into our main topic, we have a little bit of housekeeping. Our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month and get awesome rewards like thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries. So visit patreon.com slash women at warp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, sadly, Grace could not be with us because she is currently at Geek Girl Con uh, paneling it up. But we are going to talk about the episode Iborg and the character of Hugh as sort of part of a, you know, prep for the new Picard series. You know, a lot of people have been sharing lists of like must watch episodes before this new series happens. And this seemed like a as good a one as any. So let's take a look at this episode. Sue, do you want to give a little bit of the background of the creation of this episode? Yeah. So being one of, I would venture to say, the more popular episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, we tend to know more about the the creation of it than than others. The idea we know originated from a retreat that the writing staff took in fall of 1991. And the creative team, specifically, I believe Rick Berman, wanted to bring the Borg back, but knew they had to do it in a different way. Because if you continue to bring back and beat the, quote, unbeatable enemy... Then you have Star Trek Voyager. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> it lowers the stakes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So so this is the way that they chose to do it, by dealing with a single Borg who was detached from the collective. Uh, interestingly enough, the next-gen novel Vendetta by Peter David, which was published, I believe, about a year before this episode aired, had a similar storyline in the sense that Geordi was at that point also dealing with another Borg who had been disconnected from the collective. So... I think that may- maybe the the ideas just converged on this concept of what happens when we take someone away from everything they've known when it's all that they've known. Mm-hmm. There's also something super Star Trek about the idea of taking a enemy that they have set up as like completely not relatable in any way. Mm-hmm. Like some faceless enemy and then put a face on them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Star Trek has a, a long history of doing this. I mean, we start all the way with the, the Romulans and you get like that first Romulan episode with Mark Leonard in it. Oh, uh, Balance of Terror? Yeah, I think that's it. Turning someone that was a previously an unknowable faceless enemy and like exploring why they're making the choices that they're making is super common. They even do that in Deep Space Nine with the Jem'Hadar, like, these, like, shock troops, and then you have people on Deep Space Nine trying to relate to them, and in that Mm -hmm. case, it doesn't work nearly as well, but, Mm -hmm. like, the attempt is important, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, this is the one where, as we've already alluded to, they find a Borg who is damaged and are able to fully sever him from the Collective. And the original plan is we're going to engineer him with a virus to take back to the Borg Collective and destroy the Borg Collective from within. 
And, uh, you know, one of those classic Starfleet destroy the computer with an impossible problem viruses. <laughs> and uh, so they are going to do that, but through the process of working with this individual Borg who uh, Jordy terms as Hugh because he is an individual, aka you and not like you plural, they start to feel ethically wrong about this and that he actually is like a being with emotions and thoughts of his own and that it may be wrong to use him as an instrument of genocide. (laughs) Maybe. So at the end, they offer him the choice to return to the collective or that they can leave him on the planet because the Borg are chasing him. Enterprise is in danger. They can leave him on the planet, and hopefully, if he gets reassimilated, his spark of individuality and that experience will permeate the collective and maybe lead to some Borg revolution. And Hugh agrees to do that, um, knowing that if he doesn't, then the Borg will find and destroy the Enterprise. So that's how it ends. There's something really funny about how their original plan and their final plan are basically the same. In a lot of ways. Except for, like, less effective and he has the choice. (laughs) Yeah, like, but they are using Hugh to attack the Borg, but in a different way. And Mm -hmm. I find that interesting that they start with this idea and discard it, but then, like, come up with a softened, more moral version of that same idea. Yeah, and, okay, because we're on this, this topic... Like, I I love this episode, but as I was watching it this time, I was wondering, like, is that really ethical? Like, at this point in his development, because it, it feels like maybe this whole thing takes, like, a couple weeks. Oh, see, I, I saw it as a couple days. A couple days. Yeah, I was, yeah. I, I was going max a couple weeks. Yeah. Does he, can he choose? Like, can he actually understand what that choice means by that point in that development? So that was one thing I wasn't really sure about, because it seems like the one thing that makes this ethical is that they let him choose it. The other thing, too, is you notice that his choice is not what he wants for himself. It's what he thinks is best for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Which really puts both a very touching aspect to it, but also like a worrying aspect of it. Is he just like imprinted on them? And trying to please them. Mm -hmm. And so does he make this choice based on what is best for me? Or does he make this choice based on I want Jordy to be Mm -hmm. happy? And what will happen to the rest of the collective doesn't really play a part in that decision making at all. No. It's a little Stockholm Mm syndrome-y. Yeah, so that just struck me this time as sort of a like, I think this is worth considering further this explanation or this sort of this way that they reconcile their unease. I I think they also reconcile it a little bit in that what he's going back with is the individuality that he developed himself. Sure, they helped him, but it came Mm -hmm. from his own experiences. It's not something that they have created and written and literally uploaded to his brain to act as a computer virus to infect the collective. Mm -hmm. And you can argue of whether there are enough differences there. Mm -hmm. But I I think the fact that there was not a, you know, a malicious program Mm -hmm. uploaded to Hugh, I think 
uh, allows them to take the pressure off themselves a little bit. Yeah, that's true. It did make me wonder, though, like, why, how come when they assimilate individuals the rest of the time, does that not happen? Well, don't they wipe them before they assimilate them? Like, I don't really understand how that works. Well, like, because people bring their memories in when they're assimilated. Like, we've seen Borg in other shows, like, retain memories of their time before assimilation. But I think they're told that, or, like, you know, the predominant prevailing messages are, like, this is belonging, this is perfection. And that just kind of overrides things. And, like, the their knowledge of humans and or the like of their humanity is like just more useful as data like in slight spoilers for voyager in like seven of nine we see several times we'll be like species oh i guess that's the reverse that's bringing her knowledge as a borg back to when she's a human well when they're when they're describing this virus it's not mm-hmm. really that at all it is a a, a shape that can't exist in three-dimensional space yeah. Right. So, and they're they're saying that you know when when Hugh reconnects to the collective, the whole collective will get this image and they'll all try to process it. And because they can't, it will shut mm-hmm. them down. It's not about, and it wouldn't necessarily spark the notice of anything being wrong, quote unquote, with Hugh when he returns. The individuality they said might might do that, might make them reset him. And I guess mm-hmm. that would mean wipe his mar- memory. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not a foregone conclusion that he will have his memory wiped upon returning to the collective. It's only if the Borg deem it necessary. As for assimilating individuals, I think that's more of a, you know, we take your memories and add it to our memory banks and I guess assimilate it, process it. Mm-hmm. into our database of all of the species of the universe. Yes, that is more articulately sort of what I was trying to get at. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are definitely still moral questions about what they end up doing, but I think one of the strengths of this episode and one of the things I love most about it is because one of the major themes is that trauma causes people to perpetuate trauma. Mm-hmm. So the two arguably more compassionate members of this crew are the two that are pushing most strongly for Hugh to be used as a genocidal tool. And that is fully due to the trauma they have suffered by the Borg. And that's Guinan and Picard. Mm -hmm. And TNG in general doesn't do a great job of revisiting trauma, but this is one major exception in that you see very clearly that both Picard and Guinan are damaged by their experiences with the Borg and they haven't fully healed from them. Mm-hmm. And that that wound pushes them to make decisions they would never make against yeah. any other race. Like if you're telling me that Picard would be like, yeah, let's totally commit genocide, whoop de whoop, on any other species, I would be like, ha, never. But this makes sense. It mm-hmm. makes sense because of their trauma. And that's what I, I, one of the things that I just truly love about this episode is that they finally let lingering trauma show episodes later how that can impact that. Yeah. It's sort of like O'Brien's old boss um, who shows up in that one episode 
And except for like, this is a way of telling that story that interweaves multiple characters from the main cast. And that has like a positive message about how it's possible for us to reflect on where our prejudices are coming from and to make better choices and to not perpetuate that if like if friends intervene and if we can have this conversation and like actually look in at where our feelings are coming from we can make better choices i think too we also get some of troy's most accurate counseling work yes (laughs) i wish she was more in the rest of the episode she really only gets that first scene with picard and i think she could have been really interesting with hugh specifically But it's still lovely to see her take one look at Picard reacting to the Borg and be like, well, time to go to work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She, I have the, the transcript up right now and just search. She has uh, seven whole lines in this episode and four of them are in this little ready room scene with Picard. Uh, But she says right off the bat, even when he's saying he's fine, he says, I've recovered from my experience. Her response is, sometimes even when a victim has dealt with his assault, there are residual effects of the event that linger. Mm-hmm. I love that she classifies it as an assault. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love that they explicitly say that what happened to Picard was a violation and an assault. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think that that's super clear before that. And I love that they like spell it out as that, because that is what it was. They reached into his sense of self and destroyed it. Like, I cannot picture something more violating than that. Yeah. And um, I think, like, the way that that's phrased as, like, you know, sometimes this happens to victims of assault, like, and it's general, like, she's not saying, I can tell in your case, this is what's happening. And that is cool in a way, because it also speaks to the audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how about we look at some of the characters and their development in this episode maybe starting with i was gonna suggest dr crusher because she is awesome one of the first on the scene and one of the like most consistent in like her principled stance so thoughts on bev she rocks she from the very beginning is is down there doing her job as a doctor and pushing back on on these decisions that people want to make immediately like Worf wants to just kill it it Mm -hmm. we'll Mm -hmm. talk about that later i'm sure and you know no matter what she's like no this is very simple and this is to me when doctors are at their best on star trek because some of early bashir on deep space nine had this going too when i wasn't such a fan of his character he still had this whereas like no there is someone in front of me that needs my help and i'm going to help them and i don't care about the politics and i don't care about anything else this is very simple I'm a doctor. My job is to heal. And there is someone who needs healing. Mm -hmm. The end. I love that. And this is far from the only time we've seen her do this. Yeah, it's very in character. Yeah. It it happens actually a lot. I mean, if you can consider anything happening to a minor character who is a woman on the next generation happening a lot, (laughs) that they are down on uh, some kind of away mission and somebody needs medical attention. They want to beam the away team back and Crusher refuses because she's busy doing her job. That is mm-hmm. like the standard setup for this interaction. And, you know, Picard tells them to prepare to beam up and she just says no. And he stops. That changes his order every time. And I just love that a lot. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's good. I would like to say that I would have liked to see Worf do more growing, because he is the one that is the least sympathetic at the beginning, and we don't really mm-hmm. get a chance to see him move past that at all. He's mm-hmm. not one of the characters that really interacts much with Hugh, and we don't see like anything past this, really. Yeah, he doesn't get yeah. much more with Hugh, really, at all throughout the episode. Crusher, on the other hand, continues to act in the best interest of her individual patient. Mm-hmm. You know, so even when she is ordered to help develop this virus, this whatever they're going to do, she she says, I'm here to help, but I don't have to like it. Mm-hmm. When they talk about sending him back, she pushes back on this. She pushes back on wiping out an entire species. And actually, Jared, when you were giving the summary, I also checked the script and nobody in this episode utters the word genocide. But mm-hmm. that's what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is the scene where she, like, forces them to say out loud what they'd be doing. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I just think it's important that we say it. Mm-hmm. Like, if we're going to do it, we need to confront it and what it means. What I love, another thing I love about this episode is that Dr. Crusher is so principled and makes that very clear and also forces everyone else to confront it. And no one at any point is like, Ugh, rolls their eyes. Ugh, Bev again. Oh my god, she's not a team player. Whatever. Like, no one questions that she is speaking her mind because she thinks it's right, and she's not trying to, like, make everything harder for everyone else. It's, like, legitimately what she believes, and the fact that people can voice that makes their team stronger. It's not seen as something that's, like, a threat to their team. And I think too often in our world today that that kind of like dialogue in workplaces and stuff is very much like not encouraged or actively discouraged as like you're a troublemaker. Any kind of pushback or questioning can often get you labeled as uh, negative or difficult, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. for a woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just another another bonus point for this episode. And I really enjoy seeing Jordy and Crusher work together. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we see that as often as I would like. This idea of coming at it from both the engineering and medical perspective, I super love that. Which kind of brings us to Jordy as kind of yep. the linchpin of this whole transformation. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's so lovely. And I kind of get why they chose him to be this person. He is the one that has made the most strides with data. Mm-hmm. And there's just something about his kind of calm, practical empathy that works mm-hmm. really well in this story. Yeah. Jordy ends up, you know, being Hugh's friend and introducing to Hugh the concept of friendship, which, again, I question whether he can really understand that after the length of time that they've spent. But um, it's obviously very touching. And I believe that, you know, Jordy's sincere about it. And that's also interesting just seeing, you know, how they interact with Hugh that like no one's really like you know other than the point where he says like what will you do with me and they said like oh we'll we'll send you home and like they aren't telling him what they're going to do at that point Mm -hmm. but like they're pretty open about how they feel about the Borg and assimilation and they're answering his questions and uh yeah Jordy has some some good scenes with him but also they 
I mean, while they're being open with him about assimilation, we see because he doesn't have that constant hue, because he doesn't have that constant reinforcement of the collective behind him, he's thinking about things as an individual for the first time, right? So he's, what do you mean you don't want to be assimilated? What do you mean this isn't something that's desirable for you? So it's making him reevaluate things from a new perspective as well. So while they're learning about him, he's also, I don't know, developing empathy? Mm-hmm. Well, and de- certainly developing a sense of himself as a separate being, mm-hmm. as an individual. I would like to point out, though, that if you're taking a species that is used to collective communication and cutting them off from the rest of their species, that puts them in a really vulnerable and suggestible mm-hmm. place as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes. while this episode definitely comes at it from the perspective of this is a good thing, and I even agree to some point, there are ways in which this could be considered torture. Also, like, I think part of the reason they're so honest with him is that they don't even really necessarily believe him to be fully, you know, an independent being or a, like a sentient individual um, until later. Like, even Dr. Crush at one point says, like, if I didn't know better, I'd, I'd say he was scared. Mm-hmm. So, like, they don't even believe he's capable of feelings at first. So they're not afraid of hurting him. Well, it just, it made me think of the stories you hear or sometimes read about people raised in these churches that are actually hate mm-hmm. groups and learn more about the rest of the world and leave mm-hmm. them. And it's, it, I don't know, it just seems like there are some parallels there, especially when we look at this story from Hugh's perspective. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as you said, Andy, like Guinan's a really important probably undergoes the biggest flip-flop because even Picard is like less hard line on the situation than Guinan at the beginning. Like she's the one who's, you know, giving him sort of a lecture during fencing about like how you aren't taking this danger seriously enough. But she has a point then, right? In that scene? Yeah, literally and figuratively. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true Mm -hmm. and it's an actual tactic of like playing on someone's compassion to beat them in the end Mm. and it's kind of unlike Guinan compared to Mm -hmm. other episodes but we totally understand where it's coming from and that's why it's really cool and then she ends up being the one to like persuade Picard you actually have to talk to him before you go through with this well she's the only one that can speak to their shared trauma like nobody else truly understands the way that she understands why Picard feels this way because she lost her whole race to this yeah that's why I think the scene between her and Hugh is so lovely where they just like the whole when he looks at her and says, you are lonely. I'm lonely, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Like, holy crap, guys. Right yeah. in the feels. Mm-hmm. Like being able to, to have a shared experience in that way. But it's interesting to me because on the one hand, you have a victim of genocide. And then on the other hand, you have a perpetuator of it. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, as easy as it is to forget when he was right in front of you and he's super cute and he's young and he's trying, the Borg have decimated species. Like, there's mm-hmm. no way that, that, that you can just, like, dismiss that. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes really interesting to think about, like, how much do you owe them? How much understanding do you owe them 
if they're not actively trying to atone. Yeah, but with him, he's separate. So, and then it's like this whole question of like, does that make him not Borg anymore? And also, does the fact that he probably personally did not do anything to Guinan, does he, is he still share culpability into what happened to her because he is part of the race that did it? Like, how much do we assign responsibility to him, but because he's part of this collective? Yeah, well, we've already forgiven Picard for Wolf 359, unless you're Cisco. And as Riker says, there are no civilians among the Borg. Yeah. yeah. So he's certainly culpable while he's connected to the collective. Yeah. But when he's not, I mean, they share thoughts, but they're also controlling him. Yeah. So is he no longer culpable as an individual? Yeah, and it's all super interesting and a really fascinating look at like this kind of idea of where does personal responsibility <laughs> factor in here? I, and I, I can't help but think about Deep Space Nine again in that this is another area where Star Trek explores that, like, racial culpability. When we're talking about mm-hmm. the Cardassians mm-hmm. versus the Bajorans, how much, how much of moving forward is just letting go of all of the bad things that happened. I'm thinking here of duet. Mm-hmm. So I just find it to be a very deep, rich kind of area for exploration. And I think the Borg are interesting species to explore it with because they have so many extra elements of who is responsible. Mm-hmm. Well, and not to uh, get like too in the weeds here, but you know, at this point in Star Trek history, we haven't been introduced to like the Queen. We don't actually know where the Borg came from. And there's a question about, you know, at what point were so many people linked together in a in a collective that their individual good ethics were outweighed by their collective bad ethics? Like, if... Is there no culpability because they're being controlled, but they're being controlled by a collective of other individuals. So, like, at some point, if all of their memories and their principles were being interjected into this computer system, is there a failing of all of them collectively as in, as individuals? Does that make any sense? Like, yeah. if we're... Are, is it just because, like, now they feel anonymous and, like, there's enough of them that want to destroy other beings or assimilate other beings that now they're not culpable the other thing is is you could almost look at at the borg as all victims because they were Mm -hmm. all at one point individuals that were then assimilated and like is it basically like the original person is murdered and then their corpse is like forced to to do horrible things like I don't know. I don't know the answers mm-hmm. to those questions. Mm-hmm. I think if we go back and look at where the idea of the Borg started, which was with the Cybermen in Doctor mm-hmm. Who, it's this case of technology and the desire for advancement sort of run amok. Yeah. Right? So even if it started with the best of intentions, things can get out of hand quickly. Yeah. And that's assuming that it started with a person 
You know, I thought mild spoilers for Discovery Season 2. I thought that we were going to get a Borg origin story Mm -hmm. in Discovery Season 2 with Control. And that starts with technology, Mm -hmm. with, with an artificial intelligence running amok. Either way, it's, I think, an allegory for letting things go unchecked. Because that that seems to be the commonality there. Yeah, like it doesn't even have to be technology. It can just be like mob mentality with a like technology overlay. They definitely mm-hmm. pulled on a lot of horror elements like zombies mm-hmm. and also the invasion of the body snatchers. This idea that you can be infected or lose yourself and then be forced to do things that you would never do normally with no mm-hmm. sense of individuality. It's definitely a very scary thing for humans because we are, we prize individuality so much. Yeah. But I also feel like at some point on the show, we should try to look a little bit more at technological prosthetics and the Borg again and in the context of cyborg theory, because something that like Donna Haraway points out talking about cyborg theories that like technology can be uniquely liberating from like gender constraints and from possibly other types of constraints, but particularly like anything that is perceived as tied to the body. So it doesn't like the scary view of what it means to be a cyborg is only like one way of looking at it. And Star Trek does tease into some of the other ways, usually just with like individual prosthetics like the visor, but maybe something to explore a little bit at a further point when I've actually had a chance to reread some of that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, but we got far away from where we started, which was (laughs) uh, the character growth. Andy, you referred to Jordy as the linchpin in all of this. And I am seeing this, the, the changes happening through this these characters as more of a cascade, mm. right? We start with Crusher, who is on Hugh's side from the very beginning. And then she gets Jordy, and then Jordy gets Guinan, and then Guinan gets Picard. Yeah. I was actually thinking about that, too, because I was thinking about how it parallels what they're planning on doing to, to Hugh. Like, having mm-hmm. one person, in their case, infect, but also convince, like, you could see that as that. I think the reason that I saw Jordy as more of the linchpin is because he's also the one that seems to get through to Hugh. So it goes both ways with him. Fair. Yeah. Where you see later that it's the threat to Jordy that pushes Hugh past a lot of this. So like when we mm-hmm. have the really terrific scene <laughs> between Locutus, I'm mm-hmm. doing my air quotes that nobody can see. Between Locutus and and Hugh, the moment that he really starts to resist is when he's like, there's a threat to Jordy. Mm-hmm. And that's also what drives his decision making at the very end, is there's a threat to Jordy. Before we even get to that scene, we have Picard and Guinan, with Guinan saying, well, what did you think when you spoke to him? Picard's like, it's not necessary to speak to the Borg. Mm-hmm. I don't need to speak to the Borg. And she's the one who convinces him to confront it face to face. He was perfectly content to say, I am doing what I know or what I feel to be morally correct, but I don't have to like it and I'm going to try and stay uninvolved in it. And she sort of pushes him into the deep end, as it were. 
Well, and Jordy's the one who pushes her there. Mm-hmm. And I'd also like to point out the pronoun usage in that scene, which is pretty striking. And yeah. that you'll see that the people that are at least initially resistant to the idea of Hugh as an individual being will use it. And mm-hmm. then the people that have decided that he is a person use he. And mm-hmm. Guinan goes through that transformation herself. She starts out with it and ends with he. And then over the course of that scene, you see Picard still using it and her using he. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's interesting. And a good example of how something as simple as pronoun usage can really impact how people see themselves and how they see others and how dehumanizing it is to call someone it. Well, Picard literally yells, it's not a person, damn it, it's a yep. Borg. Because for him to move forward, that's what it has to be like. Because he, mm-hmm. he can't justify it otherwise. So he has to keep that distance or he can't justify it to himself. So he has to dehumanize you because that's the only way that he can move forward with his plan. That's why in like modern context, why people get so worried and scared when you see politicians especially start using this dehumanizing language because it's the first step of making it okay to hurt people or kill them without guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we see that Picard adopts that again in First Contact. Yeah, which is interesting. You could make the case that it's a step backwards for him, but you could also make the case that trauma is hard to move past. Well, and also, I mean, in that case, we're, we're dealing with active drones. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, certainly he does have some issues he has to grapple with in that movie, but it is, like, a bit of a different scenario. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting. Yeah, what else do we want to cover in about uh, Iborg? Jonathan Del Arco is a really good actor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he does a really, really good job in this episode because it all hinges on people feeling sympathy for Hugh. And I think he really does a great job in bringing it from the very beginning of the episode where he's still in full Borg mode to the end where resistance is not futile, right? Mm-hmm. It's really an important performance to make the whole thing work. And he does a really good job. So I'm very interested to see him come back. Yeah. Also, he he's very charming on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've been very much enjoying him on Twitter. He was a TOS fan, mm. or I guess I should just say a Star Trek fan growing up, and uh, was one of the actors who was auditioning for the role of Wesley Crusher. Oh. And so when he did not get that role, uh, he apparently refused to watch Next Gen until he got a chance to guest star on it. <laughs> That's amazing. And I'm pretty sure he landed in the right role. Yeah. He, it really is a, a great performance. And I have mixed feelings about the character of Hugh coming back because I had mixed feelings about the character of Hugh coming back in TNG. Like, this Mm -hmm. is such a, Mm. to me, perfect standalone story that him coming back was both exciting and disappointing. Exciting because you want to know what happens to him. Otherwise, he just flies off into the stars and you don't know if what anybody did made any difference. But then also disappointing because how do you top that? Well, it's also, it kind of is a bit like yesterday's Enterprise-ish, like followed by Sila. 
Yeah. Maybe not, it's not quite that devastating, but I do want to talk about Descent just quickly. It it doesn't, you know, take away from what is awesome about Iborg. And there's some great things in Descent as well. I just feel like for completeness sake, and because, you know, it's probably not an episode we're going to touch on a whole heck of a lot, that we should maybe talk about some of the highlights and the lowlights outside of sort of the primary data lore storyline. But... For those who don't remember, Descent uh, is a two-parter at the end of season six, and it is what happens when they find Hugh and a bunch of other Borg that basically it turns out his individuality did spark some of them to want to leave the collective, but they had no experience in like living and working together as individuals and kind of weren't able to make it work. So Lore monopolized, uh, took over and gave them the authority and structure they craved and tries to, he's like performing experiments on them and wants to get Data's help in that. So yeah, so for me, it was a little bit like yesterday's Enterprise where you had this like noble kind of like powerful ending and then you find out like it all actually didn't work. Um, <laughs> where like Sila comes back and you're like, oh, wait, but I thought this was Tasha's meaning. <laughs> and they, well, they kind of do it again in Descent in that um, once they get rid of Lore, they say to Hugh, you know, like, you're the leader now. Try and help these these people function as individuals and work together as in a group. It's all up to you. Yep. And I'm I'm assuming that's who we're going to meet in the Picard show. But who knows? <laughs> I mean, the parts that I care the most about in Descent are in part two, and they take place on the bridge. Again, with with my girl, Dr. Crusher, commanding the ship, shutting down some mansplainers, encouraging Ensign Tate to, to throw out her ideas and to be confident in what she knows and what she's doing. And I, I think there are some really great scenes on the bridge, some callbacks to some episodes that we don't always get, like suspicions and that metaphasic shielding. Mm -hmm. There's also Troy gets to go on an away mission. I was like, whoa, Troy's on a planet. <laughs> like in in her not counselor uniform looking for data. Like that was, I, I was like a notable Troy doing something that moment. But she also has a good counseling scene in part one where they're trying to figure out why data is experiencing anger and she gives him the talk about how like emotions in themselves aren't negative it's what you do with them and actually like very important again like good advice from counselor troy in, in iHu and this one and yet for the rest of the two-parter they go on to talk about negative emotions yeah but i mean they do kind of point out that it, it was like lore was feeding him that stuff so yeah, I mean, yes. TNG is not perfect on mental health and emotions, but I did like the Troy scenes. In terms of like what it says about Hugh and the sort of independent Borg, I think it isn't for me nearly as bad as the situation with Sila because it's pretty fair actually to be like, yeah, what would happen if you put together a group of people that had never dealt with working cooperatively with as individuals? And maybe it was like, I mean, they were really just taking a shot in the dark. And you have that interesting stuff between Picard and Necheyev questioning the decisions mm -hmm. that they made in Iborg. And he's like, you know, we were like, we're at war. Maybe this was the wrong decision. And Necheyev ain't got time for no morals. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel like there's like a fair amount of interesting stuff in there 
you know, not my favorite two-parter in all of TNG. And certainly a lot of it is about just data and lore stuff. But there's also a callback to the, you know, Jordy as Hugh's friend and that Hugh ultimately changes his mind to help them because he wants to help Jordy. I will say that one thing that I would have liked, and they don't really have time, so this isn't a serious criticism, but I would have liked to see more data Hugh interaction in Iborg because mm-hmm. I feel like there ha- there's some parallels there. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to see data and lore to somewhat some extent interacting with the Borg because the way the Borg function and the way that data and lore function are kind of similar, but kind of not. And it was kind of interesting to see those paralleled. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Data's pretty absent from iBorg. Yeah. But overall, I really think that it's some of the same criticism that I have about descent bringing Hugh back is the same criticism that comes with the Borg in general, because when you set up a villain to be so scary and merciless, any more information you get about them blunts the impact. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is like the shark in Jaws, basically, that you don't want to see it because what you're imagining is scarier than what actually exists. So the mm-hmm. more information you get about it, the more it blunts all of that. But at the same time, exploring it more is interesting. So it's a pro and con situation. And I feel the same way about Hugh as a character and that if you could just like, if it was left up to your imagination. From storytelling perspective, I think there's an argument to be made for leave them wanting more, mm-hmm. right? Which they did not do with yesterday's Enterprise, which they did not do with Iborg. But they did do in Lower Decks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which, I, if I recall correctly, we all agreed that was the correct decision. Mm-hmm. Because we know they had been discussing bringing Cedo uh, Jaxa back. Mm-hmm. Right? And I feel like there is a bigger risk in returning to a character or a story in a really well-received one-off episode mm-hmm. than there is in just leaving it alone. Yeah. However, I do think they could have come back the next time they encountered some Borg and noticed some changes and had somebody trace it back to Hugh without him necessarily appearing in the episode to see it have a larger impact on the collective as a whole and not just these drones. Mm -hmm. But that starts, you know, playing with the next, what, 15 years Mm -hmm. of Star Trek storytelling. (laughs) So is there something you'd like to see in the Picard show, Rehue? Like, is there something you're looking forward to or interested to see how they develop it? Mm, I mean, I I think it's less risky than because it's been so many years since TNG that there's a lot of flexibility. Um, I think what they are not going to do and what would be the worst case scenario is if they pretended like things fundamentally hadn't changed since Descent. Mm -hmm. But... You know, I'm assuming that him and if he has still a cohort of Borg, that they'll be uh, much more developed and independent and have figured out a new way of working together. So it'll be interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if he's necessarily on that Borg cube that we saw in the preview Mm -hmm. or not. But I mean, I don't think I'd mind seeing Hugh captaining a ship with, with some of his other individualized Borgs 
And maybe some other misfits. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe he's like the Captain Mal of the Star Trek universe. Found Mm -hmm. family. Found family. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing I love more than a found family, Mm y'all. One thing that I think might work better is the idea that this is a longer period of time for changes to happen. Whereas Descent happens so quickly after this one that it's kind of too soon almost. Like big societal changes in any society Mm -hmm. is going to take time to like percolate and cook. So I think it makes more sense that we would be checking back in on this, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later than the what Mm -hmm. year or so between the others episodes. I mean, I think that assuming that they've been kind of on their own for this entire time, that we can expect them to be different than, than our Federation cohorts. It's like, imagine if instead of, Seven of Nine being, like, basically raised and, like, indoctrinated back into human society by her friends on the Star Trek Voyage, on the Starship Voyager, that, like, she was just stuck in a ship with, like, eight other people who were ex-Borg. And I think we can be pretty confident that Hugh at least did not return to the Collective during the time span of either First Contact or Voyager. Who knows? Maybe he did after that. And he is on that Borg cube, and he's somehow part of the collective. Or, I don't know, there's a lot of things they could do. I would like to hope they would keep, seeing as it's only two episodes, two or three episodes worth of of history involved, I'd like to think they'd keep this in mind when creating the story for Picard. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. Cool. I think that to close this off, well, we usually do a rating for these episodes, so we could do iBorg. I would suggest we don't uh, rate descent and i also feel like a good quote to end off with is the quote from jonathan del arco about iborg that he says it holds up the chalice of that highest moral that i think gene roddenberry meant the show to do question 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 every step of the way so i like that well he gets it clearly mm-hmm. yeah I, I would like to say too that one thing that i like about this episode is that there's not really very much action it's all dialogue pretty much mm-hmm And that's something I miss from Discovery. It also is very much ensemble. Like, and Descend is too, actually. Like, almost everyone gets something to do. Yeah. And I also, I don't want to read the whole thing, but just want to point out that uh, comments from both Rick Berman and Michael Pillar on this episode both come back to specifically having Guinan and Picard uh, confronting their own prejudices when dealing with the Borg. And I think that is is something else that Star Trek is very good about. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, do we want to give our ratings for iBorg? Sure. Start start with you, Andy. I would like to give it 9 out of 10 dropped fencing foils. <laughs> Sue? Oh, I think I'd give this 9 out of 10 lionfishes. <laughs> Lionfish? Fishes? Fish. Fish. <laughs> <laughs> I will give this one nine out of ten energy meals. Aw. 
Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us this week. Andy, where can we find you elsewhere on the internet? Easiest place to find me is Twitter at First Time Trek, where I am very rarely live tweeting my journey <laughs> through Star Trek. And Sue, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at Speltor, and that's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. And I'm Jerry. You can find me on Twitter at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin or at TrekkieFeminist.com. And for more f- ways to get in touch with our show, you can email us at crew at women at warp.com or visit our website, women at warp.com. You can also find us. We're on Instagram and we're on Facebook and we're on Twitter at women at warp. And we have a Goodreads book club. We're everywhere. And basically, yeah, we, we love hearing from you. So, uh, thanks so much for listening to the show. For more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, you can visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. Hey.